Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Hey, this is Josh Carter from uh, Patriot Bootcamp, and we are here uh, once again for the veteran founder, I don't know what we're calling it yet. We don't even have a name for it yet, which is just crazy to me. I'm sure at some point we'll figure this out. But this week, I'm really excited. Uh, Carmen, uh, not excited about Carmen not being here, but excited that I have David Molina from uh, Operation Code. We'll get to him in a moment. Uh, but... We have a sponsor this week, which is great. We had a couple sponsors last week. We have a few this week, which is awesome. And I'm going to tell you about CPA dudes. You know, having a CPA is an, a necessary evil in your business, but it doesn't mean it has to be boring. So these guys, they, uh, you know, they, they, their price is not based on time. Their customers decide the value to them, and they don't charge you for you know spending invoices or phone calls or emails or texts or whatever. They just get the damn job done. So if you want really good CPAs, go to cpadudes.com forward slash startup radio, and uh, I'm sure there's some discount. If not, they, you should press them for a discount because I mentioned them. Which is awesome. So, uh, so again, welcome to the uh, Veteran Founder Hour. We are here with uh, one of my favorite people. I uh, absolutely adore this gentleman. Uh, I had the honor of serving as a founding board member for Operation Code, where he is the founder and CEO. For those unfamiliar, Operation Code takes transitioning military vets and teaches them either how to code with the objective of getting a job or starting their own business. So I have, this is a sweet spot for me. I, I love this organization, and I'm so glad that David is here. He's based in Portland, which is even better because I get to see him where, whenever I want. So uh, David Molina, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. An honor to be here. Thank you, Josh, for the warm introduction. It's oh, so man. good seeing you again, man. This was freaking awesome. It's like a re- we were spending the last 15 minutes in the other room just riffing because you know we have so much to share and we're so passionate about the space. And uh, and it's funny, our producer was like, you know, this you guys need to stop. You're doing the show right now. And uh, so it's great to, to have you here. I'm excited to spend the next hour uh, getting to know you more and and uh, and introducing our audience about what Operation Code is and how you're helping transitioning vets. So uh, so thank you very absolutely, much for your time. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Uh, I really want to spend a little bit of time getting to know David, right? So our, our audience are mainly people that are trying to figure out how they want to start their own business. And you took a very unorthodox path. Usually people, they get out of the military, they go to school or they go get a job for a while and, they, and then they figure out what they want to do next. You got out of the military and said, I want to code. Yeah. So talk a little bit first about your experience in the military. What, what was your, the forcing factor that got you into the army? Well, I mean, truth be told, I, I wanted to, you know, serve my country. I wanted to get out of Mount Vernon. Anybody who grew up in a little tiny little town in the Skagit <laughs> Valley, you know, and uh, and I just, you know, was there and I was cooking in the kitchen at Red Robin. I was uh, flipping burgers and doing salads and, you know, they had great plans for me. The leadership at Red Robin up in Burlington, you know, blessed our heart. And, uh, you know, I, I had talked to a couple buddies of mine, some neighbors who were in armor and uh, and, and uh, definitely excited about seeing their photos and their, their service at Fort Knox. And, yeah. 
and mobilizations. And these guys were active duty and they were, you know, Hispanic, just like myself. And I got pretty excited after looking at this stuff. We'd always play with the nine mils. We'd always go shoot the 22 and the 30 off six and we'd all get pigeons and stuff. And, and I mean, I don't think we even had permits and licenses at the time, but I mean, this thing kind of excited me. And the excitement to me was not to beyond just serving my country is get the hell out of Mount Vernon and go look over the horizon and yeah. see and smell the fresh air and smell it somewhere else. And that to me was the most exciting part, you know? You found people that, that were like, say habla, boom. Right, <laughs> right. No, no, we did. And so my, my buddy, uh, Fernando, who uh, we both enlisted the same day, and he was like, I'm going into civil affairs. Come on, Dave, you want to come with me? And I went, and sure enough, I mean, I don't think I even told my mom, my brother, my, my uh, girlfriend at the time. I didn't tell anybody. I just yeah. went over to the recruiter. I was like, sign me up, son, what he's going to sign up for, and I'll do an enlistment for, I think it was like four years, whatever it was. And, and, and what did you go in to do? What, what was the objective? What did you want to do? Well, I, I wanted, you know, the, the, the pitch was you can join the, the Army, the Reserves, and you can still do the civilian thing. You can still go off to college or whatever, and you can still go off to law school. At the time, I wanted to be a lawyer and was really excited about this whole piece of, oh, man, I could probably use my Montgomery GI Bill. is what they had at the time, right, in 2000. Yep. You know, so you can think of the age, you know, here I am at two, in, you know, year 2000. And so I did. I enlisted Reserves. My unit was assigned to Portland to the 364th Civil Affairs Brigade. And, you know, little did I know that uh, it was like top heavy officers, like captains were peons there, right? So you imagine a private walking around a PFC, that was kind of weird, right? So I was there at, at the Portland unit and arrived there in 01, February, March of 01. And at the time, I started OSU. So I started OSU, I started attending classes and visiting the campus, and I was already at OSU at the time. The funny thing is that I applied to Oregon State uh, uh, at the time, my girlfriend, through a paper application while I was at boot camp at, at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And, uh, and I filled it out and I got accepted while I was at, at the training. So that was pretty exciting nice. that I knew where I was headed. Yeah. Uh, it was funny at the time cause the drill sergeant, you know, at the time he looked at all our patches on our right shoulder and he's like, you know, he started pointing to all the privates in the room. Hey, what are you guys going to be this time next year? And, you know, of course none of the privates knew and he looked at the patches of 10th mountain. He goes, this time next year, you're going to, we're going to be in Afghanistan together. So of course he sees my patch and it's, you know, a, a, a patch from, from Portland and he goes, where are you going to be? And I'm like, I'm going to be at Oregon State, you know, uh, studying law, sir, and a drill sergeant. And, of course, he's got upset with me. He's like, dude, why are you, what are you doing in my army, son? And so there was just kind of like a wake-up call, you know. But I really enjoyed the uniform. I enjoyed doing my bed and everything that they taught me, you know, the pledge, the, the, the front leader position. I love that whole piece. To me, it was just an exciting thing uh, to, to do that and work with others. It was probably the first time, to be frank with you, that I had been in, in an organization where – there was so much diversity uh, that yeah. I was not exposed to while Mount Vernon. I mean, it was either you were Mexican, white, you were white, uh, or you were Hispanic, but we're all working class. There was yeah. no such thing as Ivy League and rich and elite and, and, and whatever, or even blacks, really, for that matter. And so to be in that environment at Fort Sill really opened my eyes to other cultures and other people and their, and their background and their experiences and their upbringing. And to me, it was such a beautiful thing. I think that, that that's what our Army affords, and it affords you an opportunity to... Uh, you know, be something, you know, be part of something so greater and so bigger than you will ever be on your own. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and uh, I had a similar experience. Uh, you know, I think I did the opposite, right? I grew up in the Bay Area and then went into the military. So I was already around some pretty culturally diverse areas and then went to the military and saw the same thing. Saw people from Arkansas that yep. I'd never seen outside of Arkansas. Mississippi. Mississippi, Alabama. absolutely. Yeah. And, and they'd never seen anything like what the military was offering. So it was amazing. So you, uh, you go in the, in the boot camp. 
You were an officer, though. You you got out as a, a captain, right? I did. I enlisted yeah. in 2000. Uh, 9-11 happened in 01, and I enrolled in ROTC. At the time, there was something called, I don't know if they have it now, but it's called the SMTP, Simultaneous Membership Program. So I was basically drilling while I was going to Oregon State, and I became a cadet at the time. And so my PFC rank switched to a sort of PFC rank to a circle, little rounds, um, almost like little, little nickels. And I had that uh, going for me at the Civil Affairs Unit. Uh, and so then I ended up, you know, the commitment is you drill still like everyone else, like you were before, except you're a cadet. You're getting paid E5 rank, so as a, you know, sort of junior NCO. And then with the commitment that you're going to graduate with your degree and a commitment that you will raise your right hand, stay in the military, this time now as a commission officer. And I commissioned in 04 after getting my degree in political science. Nice. So, so you get your degree. How long was your enlistment in the uh, in the army? How like you you spent uh, probably six years was the enlistment or the commitment after you graduated? So what's funny thing is I enlisted in two thousand. There's a four year commitment that I wanted to do, and yep. when I when I commissioned in 04, it tacked on an additional eight years. So no matter what I how many years I was already in, it automatically tacked in a minimum of eight year commitment at that part of commissioning in, in, in 2004. I didn't realize at the time, so my commitment then extended at least until 2012. And so I commissioned infantry in 04, oh, man. went to the junior school for infantry in 05. I switched from the civil affairs unit I was in into the 104th division. I was an aide to camp, I was an aide to camp to a general officer, a two-star general, one-star general, uh, and had a great time there. And then ultimately I mobilized with the unit in 07, 08, we were headed to Iraq. Uh, I was reassigned, me and about 50 other dudes were reassigned, men and women from all over the country, from that 104th Division mission to headed to Iraq, to different missions like Qatar. And it was all based on civilian skills. So all the PAs went to Walter E. to Bethesda. This is 07. Uh, we were, by the way, we were all at Fort Riley, Kansas um, at the time. It was super freezing cold, snow and everything else. But we got reassigned. <laughs> so we all got shipped off to different places. Like some of the colonels went to uh, Pentagon. Some of the majors went to Alexandria, Virginia. Me, a captain, a couple NCOs went to a place in, up in northern Maryland, a little warehouse that would process the personal effects of our fallen and wounded comrades. So, oh, wow. But that was in 07, 08, and then came back from that assignment in 08, back in the reserves, and then mobbed again, 11, 13. Oh, wow. And uh, so I did another assignment there, active duty mobbed, and nice. then ultimately uh, you know, got out as a captain uh, in 2014. Oh, wow. So you get out of 2014, you're a captain, army captain, got your nice shadow box, you got yep. Your, yep. your letters, your medals all nice and shiny. Yep. You get out and you go, I, I want to code. What was that transition for? That seems like such a left turn, but but talk a little bit about Everybody that. Everybody thought it was crazy. My commander thought it was uh, ludicrous. Um, I had actually read, I had actually tried coding in PHP in my SQL. For those that don't know on an, on an iMac, was painful at, at best. And I wanted to build sort of this database application for this app that I was creating called Bilingual Hire, right? I wanted to create this sort of job search engine for bilingual talent. And this is in 2012, 13 timeframe. Yeah. And when I started to learn it, I couldn't really learn it. It just, you know, hit my head up against the wall. Then I tried to learn, you know, uh, iPhone development. And by the time, you know, I'm literally as a, you know, captain here at the unit in Dover Air Force Base, you know, pulling in 15-hour days is is insane. Plus, I have three young daughters that, at, uh, you know, they're on base with my wife at the time. So I started to learn this, and I just, you know, kept beating my head up against the wall. And in one of those instances, I Googled, you know, how do you code? How do you learn to code? And there was no organization <laughs> for that. veterans. <laughs> and what I found, Josh, is I found this blog by a woman named Jennifer that yeah. who was a journalist at the time, and she wanted to get her ideas out on the internet 
but she didn't want to go through a co-founder or a technical right. co-founder. So she taught herself to code. And check this. Her blog had it where if you wanted to learn to code, her suggestion was go to the nearest hackathon and volunteer. Yeah. Go to the nearest hackathon and learn. And when I read this, I thought, holy smoke. So this is in summer 2012. I literally Googled the same thing. Hackathons, Dover Air Force Base. And the closest thing that came to me was in New York that summer. And that's where I met one of the other founding board members, Nick Frost. And I attended oh, that hackathon. Nick. I applied for to attend. It was too late to yeah. register. So I, I begged the, the, the co-founder of the group. Uh, Greg was his name. I begged him, literally begged him. and says, hey, man, please accept me to your hackathon as a volunteer. I will do anything. Man. I'll cut bread. I will serve plates. I will clean rooms. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I yeah. just wanted to be part of this angel hack hackathon in New York City that, that summer to in my view, learn, hack, learn how to hack, learn how to code. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, a lot of people hear hackathon and think some nefarious uh, thing. And it's cool. Uh, you know, it's kind of coming for full circle because you and I are now partnering on a hackathon called Vet Hacks in, yes. in D.C. Indeed. Uh, next month, which is awesome. Okay, so so you go to a hackathon and you, you want to learn to code. Uh, and at some point, that wasn't enough. Right, you said yeah. you said this this is great, but this is only a weekend. I can't learn how to code in right. a weekend. This is kind of just ridiculous. I need more. Talk a little bit about that. I got back from the hackathon and I started to Google. One of the things I learned at this hackathon was something called Rails, and uh, in JavaScript. And so at that time, I started Googling, you know, Ruby Rails and JavaScript yeah. near Dover, Delaware. There was absolutely nothing. So I started this thing called Dover Coders in Dover Air Force Base. And me and another federal contractor were the only ones that showed up for the longest time. We ended up, you know, it was just us two. And we thought we were there to hack and code. We didn't know what we were doing. He was PHP, and I was trying to learn Rails <laughs> on my own. It was impossible. So I started to attend meetups uh, outside Delaware, and I would drive to a little town, well, town over the Bay Bridge to a place called Baltimore. And so every Monday, I would go from Dover Air Force Base to Baltimore to this meetup. And I would be surrounded by other Ruby Rails enthusiasts, and I would sit there with my MacBook Air that I didn't know what I had installed, what was homebrew, what was <laughs> what. And I would sit there and I would watch these guys in amazement, these sort of these beautiful souls just sort of openly sharing what they knew on their computer that would display on this whiteboard or this or the screen. And I sat there and I learned about pairing. I learned about something called GitHub and I learned something about Heroku. And I was just hooked, Josh. I was so hooked that you couldn't convince me if you paid me to stay in the military, <laughs> to stay in the military. I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. I was sold on Ruby Rails. I didn't know much about it other than pairing and, and maybe some of the commands, uh, how to deploy, you know, you know, Git push or, you know, Heroku master, whatever it was at the time, uh, origin master. And I was just so hooked on it, that whole piece of deploying. And I got so excited and, and I started to take a class with, uh, Matan Griffel, uh, uh, something called one month rails. And it was actually at the time on skill crush or skills fund, something like that, skill, something skills class. And I forgot the name of it, but I took it. And that's where I learned how to build at least a landing page and an app in rails. And, I got so excited, and there was no turning back, Josh. I literally took me and my three little girls and my wife at the time and jumped off that cliff when we departed Dover Air Force Base with not a plan in sight other than some basic tech skills uh, in Rails. 
basically. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love that uh, that story because you know that's what that's what military people do, right? We go out there and we just figure things out, right? And that's why what makes military veterans so so uh, so such good entrepreneurs is that we take this whatever this much mush of clay and we make a beautiful piece of pottery out of it. Uh, so I, I love that story. So you're done uh, at Dover. You had what brings you back to Portland? So I was, I mean, our family's here in the Northwest. So we come back to the Northwest. Um, we buy a house in Southeast Portland, outer Southeast. And I, we come back here. Um, we have three little girls in tow. And well, what brought us back here was we bought the house while we were on active duty, right? Yeah. So we played it smart. We bought it while we were on active duty, of course. And I had applied to the Flying Iron Code School and they had said, you know, great, you're, you're good to go. But when it came time to pay the tuition, I couldn't pay it. And so I was pretty bummed, and I thought to myself, you know what? If I can't use my tuition or I can't use my GI Bill to go to Flatiron Code School, um, I'm just going to self-teach myself, and I'm going to build a company, a business, that will send me to Code School, send me to the Flatiron Code School in New York City and study with Adam and, and Avi and them. And... You know, and then so I sort of, sort of, you know, started going to NetSpace. I enrolled in NetSpace uh, with Mark Grimes. We were located at the time over on 15 Clay, and I would ride my bicycle from Southeast Portland every day. <laughs> I kid you not, all the way to NetSpace on 15 Clay to learn, you know, uh, you know, Rails and yeah. keep building my landing page, keep building Bilingual Hire this app, and keep learning all this stuff because eventually I would send me this this company that I was building, the startup, would have enough money to send me. To code school, and this is in the year 2013, sure. um, and it blew by fast. 2013 blew by fast. We roll right into 14, and what was funny in 13 is uh, I started to attend conferences. Like RailsConf was in Portland that year, so I applied as a scholarship. Uh, there was no scholarships for veterans. There was scholarships for as a Hispanic. There were scholarships, and so I applied under that sort of umbrella, and I got in. And I met a ton of Rubyists. I met you know the Portland Ruby Brigade at the time. I started going to meetups, and I was just hooked. The whole thing I was just hooked with the whole community, the love of open source, and this is how I sort of sort of self learning right, just going to conferences, going to meetups. Um, the revenue never really flowed from that sort of area. And I met a lot of other people that were having the same issue that I had that could not use their GI Bill to go to code school. Um, started to sort of instigate, started asking questions. I went to my first Patriot Boot Camp in 13. That's where I met Senator Tim Kaine, asked him the question, what are we doing about this? He didn't really have an answer. I uh, pitched the Republican side with uh, Senator McCain in Arizona. He didn't have an answer either. I mean, this is 2013. This was so brand spanking new. Uh, they were sort of like arm's length away. They wanted to stay arm's length away. They didn't want to touch it, it seemed like. And so we were sort of on our own. I was on my own to learn this stuff. And it wasn't in 2014 that I finally came to the realization that I had enough of the skill sets uh, that I didn't need a co-founder, enough skill sets to build Operation Code. And so I did. I launched basically two landing pages, one to collect the data and one was the landing page. And, and, and I probably wouldn't have launched it had it not been for another Rubyist um, at the time that were Cascadia Ruby in downtown Portland that said, Dave, you have enough skill sets, just go ahead and launch this damn thing. Like, don't wait any longer. Um, it was, I think, the hardest part that I, that I went through the realization is that it was paralysis by analysis. I wanted the perfect app, the perfect landing page, and that delayed me about a year from 2013 to 2014. But we finally launched in the summer of 2014. That's amazing. So let so the the GI Bill. Let's talk about yeah. that for a second because that's a really important component to all of this, right? So mm -hmm. I have the I had the GI Bill as well, and I took that and I went through uh, art school in San Francisco, which it didn't pay for shit, which right. was amazing. <laughs> I still ended up with you know Stafford loans, but the thing about the GI Bill at the time was the the curriculum needed to be static, it couldn't be dynamic, and it needed to be an accredited university or some sort of accredited school. That was how they. 
quote unquote protected the veterans from getting um, had by some organization that wasn't very credible. Right. But the problem with was that it also tethered uh, or tied the veterans' hands that they couldn't use the GI Bill for a trade school or a school that they really wanted to get some valuable information that was very focused or niche, right? And mm-hmm. code schools fell under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. And so what I love about this story is that you you took this Operation Code and you said, not only are we going to help mentor these transitioning veterans, but we're going to create a JAG brigade who's going to go out and they're going to go to these different code schools and they're going to say, are you accredited? No, let's get you accredited mm-hmm. so that you can use the GI Bill. What was the thought process around that and how did you gather these these volunteers that gave of their time to figure out how to utilize and take the GI Bill and, and in, ensure that these veterans could use it in code schools? The first landing page that I built in Operation Code was that, that November of 2014. I was up in Mount Vernon and I had spoken to another veteran who had joined Operation Code and I had called him at the time we asked for phone numbers and I had called this gentleman and he had actually was very depressed, uh, you know, uh, very lagging in motivation and he had actually com- he had actually considered suicide because he didn't find the resources online anywhere on the internet. Uh, Josh, 2014, it was very disturbing to me. I was, I mean, I couldn't fall asleep that, that weekend and I committed to him. I said, if you f- have on Operation Code a link that gives you all the technical resources in terms of how to get going, what code schools are out there, what vocational programs are out there, would that be of help? man. And, and he, of course, said, yeah. And he was crying on the phone and everything else. So I did that. I did that on the weekend of, of Thanksgiving 2014. I committed the entire weekend from my family. They were a little uh, bummed and pissed that I wasn't with them and drinking and eating tamales, <laughs> but I did. And I did that website and I created it. And for the longest time, I would create these links. And at the time, I was literally calling code schools and saying, hey, you know, we want to add you to here. Uh, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. And some code schools were, you know, the majority were, yeah, let's let's do this. But a good number just seemed to sort of blow us off, and they didn't want to touch the government. They thought it was too bureaucratic, too much red tape. Uh, they were upset that the state didn't support them. They they were upset that uh, that the red tape was just, you know, too much to bear. Uh, they couldn't maneuver the curriculum that they wanted to. Man- curriculum at the time was evolving so rapidly and so right. quickly, month to month, it seemed to change, and they didn't want to get stuck in that. And um, so I we launched the code schools peach. It was curated by myself. Uh, and we were that was like the number one visited page on our site, and it actually still is today to this date, you know, four years later now. Um, and so we started to, you know, I started doing a lot of phone calls with vets who had joined, and there wasn't a lot, a lot of people joining at the time. We ended up lobbying that first year and literally petitioning members of Congress. What I would do is I would ask for people's zip code is the reason I asked for it, and then I would find that person's senator and hit them up on Twitter and say, hey, someone an operation code a member has is is wanting to use their GI bill to go to code school from your district and i would tweet that gentleman and not a single member of congress not a single senator both parties not would ever one. respond not one it was ridiculous so i got <laughs> the more they did that the more upset in me and the more i pushed on this and instigated this and instigated until you know in 2000 and we roll right into 2015 and of course you know by that point we had already uh, you know there was a lot of people a lot, well my mentor fernando paredes rubius and chris hoff we had moved from the repository of github into a public repository and then we moved on to slack and as soon as we moved into slack we went from a sort of you know, mentorship, one-on-one mentorship uh, that we had launched in 2014 to a very much peer-to-peer mentorship in Slack in 2015. And it was a beautiful thing. I mean, it slowly started to mature and grow and, you know, veterans joined. They started creating channels like Android and uh, questions and, you know, mobile and, you know, iOS and Android. And people would ask these questions inside of Slack. So it became a very much a remote, decentralized sort of learning environment where we would share scholarship, we would share information. And so I moved away from the sort of pairing with people and sort of working one 
one-on-one with people to sort of continue to update the website on my own, a couple, you know, contributors to really thinking about the big picture goes, where is this headed? You know, we still need to make the GI Bill accessible to these code schools and we need to make sure Congress gets on board. And so I spent a lot of time, not just on lobbying piece, but a lot on the strategy piece. And the more I considered this, the more I realized that this thing cannot just be an open source project. This can't just be a volunteer effort. And I started consulting some of my close advisors here at United Way and Morrison Child Family Center. And one former CEO of Morrison said, Dave, what you really want to do guy here is, is a, is launch a nonprofit. And if you launch a nonprofit, then you can take donations, then you can build this organization, then you can have staff, and you can do the things that you want to do. But without a nonprofit status, it's going to be incredibly difficult to sort of get that legitimacy from both Congress members yep. and both from sort of the general and public at large. And keep in mind, I mean, we, we are not running around in uniforms. We're, we're not running around very identifiable. Uh, we actually don't even have physical offices. This all exists on the internet. It all exists on operationcode.org. And that was the beautiful thing. And it allowed us at that early stage to sort of build this up and we quickly then put together a founding board and it became pretty obvious that this thing needed some structure and needed to sort of scale and grow to meet the demands. And at the time, we were growing maybe two, three people a day. Uh, and, and, and by 2015, we we're maybe about 15 people a day. And it, and it was, became pretty obvious that what we uncovered here, what we unearthed, Josh, isn't that Dave Molina was the only one with this problem, is that there were hundreds of veterans globally that had this problem. Everybody had to scratch their own uh, itch to scratch here globally, both you know on active duty, transitioning, veterans, and lo and behold, spouses who had yeah. this issue too. I mean, one of our first uh, founding board members was a gal named Amy Knight who had said, you know, had it not been for the Nashville School Software, when she got her divorce and her training that she received at NSS, a nonprofit out of Nashville coding school, she would have been hosed. I got her, we got her on the board of directors. Thank God for Mike Sobelski, a Navy uh, cryptology officer out of Baltimore, one of the first Rubyists I met in this industry when I was still on active duty. And it just became you know, a beautiful thing. And through that, we started to sort of structure this thing and help bats, you know, make sure the landing page was good and keep building, keep building. And, and so I sort of self-taught myself. I actually haven't even gone to code school ever yet. That's awesome. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable. I, I was part of that founding board team, which, I, like I said before, was such a, an amazing experience to to be on the ground floor of something so prolific that you you were you knew that there was a problem there. You knew as a transitioning vet, and and I knew this as well that the the problem with with when you're transitioning out of the military, you have this thing called TAPS, transitioning assistant program, mm-hmm. whatever it is called. Uh, but it's very much like here's how to balance your checkbook, here's mm-hmm. how to write a rent check, and so cumbersome and archaic and they don't really focus on well, wh- what's your next adventure yeah. and so they're getting a, be- a bit better about that so they have this boots to business program now mm-hmm. which is helping with transitional vets do that as well but again it's one of those things where the, the red tape that a veteran has to go through to figure out what their next step is is so ridiculous yeah. and, and I love the fact that you found this niche and decided that we're just going to build it ourselves this transition of a veteran or people that want that are veterans that have served and want to take their destiny into their own hands. So it's, yeah. it's amazing. And, and like I said before, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Well, we were, I mean, I, with TAPS, I mean, it was so ridiculous. I mean, they're still stuck in 1989. <laughs> yeah. Um, they don't uh, talk about coding and software development. They don't teach Not any of these things. Bit. Yep. And, uh, and so we started something from scratch. We built something from scratch. It's been a community effort. Um, and it's just been a beautiful experience uh, thus far. 
That's awesome. So we're going to take a quick break to tell you about uh, our next sponsor, and then we'll get right back into David Molina, who we've been talking to, who's the uh, founding board, founding uh, CEO of Operation Code, a uh, nonprofit helping transitioning military vets learn to code with the objective of either going to get a job or starting their own thing. But right now, I want to talk to you about Pork Bun Domain. So you know the website uh, is your website is is your calling card for your business, and uh, whether it's a .com or .dot .net doesn't really matter. Uh, everybody's heard of those things, but you can now get a domain that best fits what your business is. So if you have a design business, you can now get a .design uh, domain name, which is so phenomenal. And these guys have unlocked this value of finding domain names that best fit your business. So if you want to learn more, go to porkbun.com slash startup radio. And again, just like the other ad, if they don't offer a uh, uh, some sort of value discount, tell them Josh said they should give you a discount. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to get back to it. Uh, so Dave and Melina, uh, we've been talking to you about uh, Operation Code, this amazing nonprofit that you started uh, to help transitioning vets learn how to code. Uh, it's operationcode.org if people are unfamiliar. But what I love about this story so far is that you you are solving a problem and unlocking this community of like-minded individuals that are really passionate about trying to learn this thing that is one of the most difficult things you yeah. will ever endure in your life. And that's learning a language of code or right. multiple languages of code. And so we, we left off with you sort of launching this community. But let's talk a little bit about what's the future for Operation Code? Where do you, where do you see this organization going in the next five years? Well, we launched in 2014 with the intent to, you know, to lobby Congress to expand the GI Bill to include code schools. Today, there are over a, a dozen code schools nationwide that accept the GI Bill. We're pretty excited about, you know, more a dozen coming on board in 2018. And so that's a great thing. The problem is still, even though last year we moved some legislation forward uh, that provided some grant funding to code schools, is there's still a very much of a problem. Uh, that if you are, for example, a, a code school and you are going to change ownership hands, or you, for whatever reason you take on private equity, a lot of these, uh, many of these code schools are for profit, and we saw that with the Iron Yard, and now you have dozen campuses, you know, throughout the South who happen to close their doors because they don't want to dilute, you know, the experience or the curriculum or the quality of the program, despite what anybody else is telling you. You cannot just take the people who ran those campuses, start a new code school and then automatically accept the GI Bill in 90 days. That doesn't exist, right? You have, the clock starts again. And so what happens is we, you know, uh, our government, both state and also federal and the VA is limiting this technical education to vets, right? That's part of the issue. The other part of the issue is, you know, drones, you know, for, for piling of drones, right? That doesn't exist yet. So we are really behind the curveball. And what the VA keeps telling us is that they're seven years behind, Josh, in Jeez. terms of updating and modernizing the GI Bill. You know, so, so what they're trying to do, quite frankly, and what, you know, it's obvious to me, it's obvious to all our members, is they're forcing all of us to go get another degree at a university, you know, go get another master's degree in computer science, which is no problem with that. And so, but you're limiting that sort of education. The other piece of it is programs like Treehouse, uh, programs like One Month Rails, Udacity, all these kinds of online programs 
cannot accept even tuition assistance, right? So you got guys on active duty, men and women that want to dip their toes into software development, iOS development, Android development, Unity, you name it, and they can't even use their benefits. National Guard, the same thing, right? And so you have this sort of conundrum of, you know, the government and members of Congress and the staff, the White House, the VA, everybody's still like a few years behind where they're supposed to be. And part of the issue is that it it all resides back in the rulemaking. They want these programs that are non-accredited to be literally in establishing place in ownership for two years minimum before you can actually request to be GI Bill approved. And so there's a, a, that's the problem you're having. And so it's pushing vets, you know, further behind in terms of their schedule, further behind on their on their new careers, uh, you know, buying a house, making some money, starting a family, et cetera. And so you're postponing that. And that's just a terrible thing. But where we see ourselves going. That part is knocked out for us. Uh, last year, we, we moved into the physical realm. We started doing meetups at the beginning of the year. Uh, so we have about 29, 33 chapters globally from here to Okinawa who have you know strong meetup chapters. Some of our strongest are in Seattle, in Boston, Southern California, Colorado, Virginia uh, Beach, Norfolk. And so... And then we also held our first gala last year where we did a fundraiser here at the Sentinel Hotel. And what we see ourselves doing in 2018 is a little bit more of that, uh, really more into the community, doing another, uh, doing a conference, doing some more policy stuff on the Hill, and really bringing this to the forefront. So going from a sort of virtual, remote, decentralized organization to doing a lot more stuff physical, because I think part of the problem is that it, it's very hard to sort of, you know, for, for people to, especially funders and donors or policymakers, to visualize in their head what is Operation Code, unless you're either a member of Slack, you know about Slack, you know about GitHub, or you physically see it. You actually meet veterans one-on-one. And so for 2018, it'll be a lot more physical pieces. It'll be a lot more structure, a lot more, uh, you know, we've already met the three-year threshold for funding. So we'll be looking a lot more at structural pieces that we can implement and cement those those gains that we've had last year. It'll also be a time for us to sort of, you know, sort of CEOs in their own lanes, you know, chief community officer, chief communications, policy. So this goes from sort of Dave doing a lot of these pieces to sort of saying, stepping back and having more people sort of taking charge of uh, and in their lanes of the organization to grow it and move it forward and propel it. I mean, we're nearing 3,000 people on Slack. We still have a ways to go. I mean, even what we see the traffic people joining, people are not all familiar with Slack, right? It's it's a hard thing to do, right? The tech piece is still hard. It's still hard to understand, uh, but we still have a long ways to go. And and I think, you know, we're on the right track. It's just really a question more of doing more physical pieces so people can actually meet us and meet our members, see what we're about. Yeah. And that's why I love uh, that we're partnering with this Vet Hacks thing. I think that really kind of aligns with that, right? You, you get people that are coming in that are, have an idea that really not sure what they want to do, but they can take this weekend to figure out how they're, they're going to build their next big program. So I, mm-hmm. I, I love that focus, and, and I'm so excited that Patriot Bootcamp is partnering with you on that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the challenges you face. Like this is a we've talked a lot about uh, this journey that you've gone through, and and all the wins that you've had. Tell tell me about some of the challenges you faced to this point. Aside from you know getting legislatures to move on the GI Bill, what are some of the other hiccups you've run? along uh, in this in this journey that you've learned from and taken away and, and wish you've done better in this journey yeah Josh that's a really hard question I mean you know you know I'll talk personally you know after but I'll say organizationally uh, you know, part of the problem organizationally is that it's remote and decentralized. So it's very, very hard. You know, we got different time zones, people volunteering for different reasons. Some of it's, you know, for moral reasons. Some of it's, you know, they want to help vets and give back. Some of the folks are still active duty helping. And so, uh, you know, sort of the time restrictions. Because I'm in Portland, you know, my thing is going off at 4, 4, 3.30, 4.30 in the morning, my Slack. And our folks already on the Eastern Seaboard are already wide awake. So there's some sleep deprivation there. There's, you know, you got to get up. <laughs> there's also the demands from, you know, folks, uh, you know, 
know, on the government side or even foundations, you know, hey, you, I need you to have a staff, you need to have a balance sheet, you need to have a profit and loss. And so there's the challenges of, man, what does this all mean? I need the right people in place for this. We need to figure out the funding. We need to invest in this funding to have the right people at the CFO level to give us these documents so that we can actually be competitive in this space. There's also the piece of convincing foundations and workforce boards that, hey, this in veterans are an investment worth making. You know, to this point, we have received zero dollars from foundations or any workforce board. And so they've been absent, right, from this whole entire piece. And so where I think, you know what, you know, I, rule, I read the rules, I read the laws, I read the paper, and it says, hey, workforce be- boards and these foundations, you know, we're veterans of the golden rule. Goldens are the golden standard, you know, gold standard. We have received absolutely zero from, from these sort of private, public, quasi-government organizations. And it's pretty depressing, you know, because you're going as fast as you can. Yeah. You got guys who are calling you who are suicidal, who are depressed, who need help, who are homeless, who are going homeless, who are fighting fires in Montana in order to afford money to go to Costco in Arizona that doesn't exist. The people that have their GI Bill who want to use it, but the Costco in their state doesn't accept it. You know, you got folks at every state level, you know, trying to get guidance from Congress, uh, guidance from their state, and it, the, the guidance doesn't exist, right? You got folks like us trying to fight for funding for code schools, and at the same time, you got veterans organizations pushing back going, whoa, 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 Dave, $25 million for funding for code schools is a lot of money, you know? Like, this thing should be really about $15 million. so we got to negotiate, and we got to, you know, play ball with these guys, and they're very powerful organizations. They go, okay, you know what, $15 million, guys, let's take that because $15 million is better than zero, right? So there's some, some give and take, right? And so there's that piece where you think you're doing the best, you want to do your best, but then you're, you don't have any funding in the account, you know, they're, they're, your demands on your personal account, your relationships, your kids, you can't see them, you don't see them every time often. So it's very hard. And at the same time, you got a community that you know, pulls, pulls all your strings in 22 different directions. You know, hey, Dave, I want to get into coding. How do I get into it? Or you got another person saying, I got this great idea. And so there has to be, you know, so, you, so the challenge is pulling away from that and sort of mentoring, building the systems and the infrastructure. You know, the advice comes from all angles. There's the demands on the finances. There's the regulatory piece, the Department of Justice who needs a report. And it's just the whole thing is insane, Josh. I mean, you could be up all hours of the day. And I mean, just to say sane, I mean, I go to the track and I go walk and I go, you know, just kind of breathe the air because you have to, because it's so, so insane. And so, you know, then you got sort of this conflict with the board and going, okay, you got a board of directors. We need to go in this direction. We need to fundraise. And, and you know, so there's a challenge of what is fundraising? What is this? And you got all entrepreneurs going, shit, Dave, I don't, I don't know how to ask a grant. I don't know how to get a grant. Dude. Like, fuck, yeah. I don't know. Like, Welcome to nonprofit welcome, world, Welcome man. to nonprofit. So it's like that conundrum of, shit, this is a nonprofit, yet yeah. it acts and maneuvers like a startup. It, it, it maneuvers like a tech startup like yeah. it does, right? There's the piece of, well, shit, we have a budget. And everybody's like, well, shit, we don't have a budget. What is our budget? And then there's like the leadership going, dude, we need to, and we need to throw money at it to make money. Wait, what? You know, it's, it's kind of like the, the opposite of the personal piece. On the personal piece, you don't spend money you don't have. Yeah. But in the nonprofit or any startup, you know this. It's like you got to throw money at this thing in order yep. to bring money. You know, if I had known, if I had acted last year, Dave doesn't know how to organize a gala. We don't have the money for it. Well, then if I had that in mind, I would have never thrown 3000 towards Operation Code to throw the gala in the first place and, and loaned Operation Code that money. It didn't exist. But we threw a risk. So this whole piece is really about risk taking. It's about, you know, doing what your gut tells you to, doing what the people around you. Yeah. Are, are are intimately you're hearing that relationship and the people and their feelings and their and their hopes and desires of, of wanting to provide for their family and their education. So you really have to maneuver this thing as sort of as a leader on this thing is, is sort of figure out okay what well, this thing has to go in this direction and you have to maneuver this whole thing in that direction. It's like steering a big ass ship. 
Except you really don't have sales. <laughs> you have two people in here that run a veteran-focused nonprofit. We could sit here and talk about this subject yeah. for more, well, more than an hour. You and I have very much in parallel the same equal problems. Where, like, yeah, you're right. And and the challenge that I see also uh, being on this side of it is that a lot of organizations, as you as you've already touched on, don't really have an idea of how to engage veteran service organizations. A lot of them focus on employment, which is fine, but they don't they don't have have a game plan of how to do uh, veteran entrepreneurship, yeah. right? For example, and and what we we end up and being in this bucket of diversity inclusion and and veterans, sort of this bastard stepchild of that of that piece, right? And so, how do you, as an organization, overcome that? What's the conversation you have with these organizations that say it's great that we're part of this diversity plan, but this is how you have to think of veterans in a different regard? I think people are coming around to it. Uh, we we reach out to a lot of companies. Reach out to us who are either CEOs or CTOs of their companies, saying they want to take that they want to take that investment. They they get the story of Operation Code. They get that vets are disciplined, hard you know, good work ethic. Uh, they get it. They're patriotic. They want to do well. These are folks that you can literally hire them in San Diego or Santa Monica, train them in software development, or they're already coming from you know software development because they graduated code school and literally not even like tell them twice and say, listen, we need to stand up in Arizona. We have some customers over there, you don't need to tell that veteran, that that Marine veteran, the Army veteran, the Navy veteran, you don't have to tell them twice. They will deploy to Arizona. They will stand up a shop. They will recon that location. They will stand up a shop. They will recruit and hire. They will go to the local uh, you know, National Guard and other. They will do the recruitment fair. They will do that. I think the, the thing is, is that they know that vets are not quitters. They are not going to quit. They will never accept defeat. And they're going to move forward. They will move forward. They will accomplish the mission. And I think that companies are finally coming around to realize that I think it's just a question of government, foundations, particularly here in Oregon and even across the country to really come around in the way that the private sector has. We're seeing some, we got some hope there from last year with, under the majority leader with Kevin McCarthy, but it, it remains to be seen nationally how the state legislatures and even at the governor's level, how they'll react and support uh, organizations like ours to get veterans into the entrepreneurship space to launch tech companies. This is a, an investment that is still undervalued. They're still not paying much attention to it. It's kind of a shame, but we're seeing some turnaround. And so I'm really excited what y'all are doing, what we're doing in DC with VetHack to raise more awareness and more attention on this matter because it is an investment worth making. So that kind of brings us to our next point, right? You talk a lot about the legislature, you talk a lot about the state and the federal level, but for you personally, you're running for Congress in the state of Oregon. Yeah, state representative for Oregon, oh my exactly, goodness. District so 29. Talk, talk a little bit about that process. What made you decide that you needed to throw your hat in the ring and become some sort of politician? Because you, my friend, I love you, you are going to make the best politician ever. And if I could vote for you, I would vote for you in a heartbeat because you're going to stand up. I can see you standing up in the state legislature and going, listen, stop being assholes and yeah. let's make this work. Stop, stop standing on principle and just make it work for veterans. So I love that. But what was the decision process for you to, to say it's time for David, David Molina to start running as a politician? I, I would say that the that the highlight for me was in 2013 when I asked Senator uh, the the senator from Virginia, the Democrat senator from Virginia, who's the running mate for Clinton uh, here. His name is escaping me, and Tim I asked Kane. him the question. Yeah, Tim Kaine, yeah. and I asked him the question about what is Congress doing to expedite the learning for veterans. We just heard from you know a lot of veterans here in the room who who need a technical co-founder. They would like to use their GI Bill to go to a code school. Yet two out of 150 people in this room have gone to code school, and yet. 
what is Congress doing to expedite this or to at least close the gap? And his answer was so, you just named it, you know, very politician, right? He just escaped the entire question. He punted the ball to the workforce boards and Department of Labor and everyone else except himself. (laughs) And to me, it was just, I was struck. And so, you know, Raf was in the room, so was... um, Taylor and everybody else when we, the last day of the event and I had told him I go hey I'm so pissed with his answer yeah. and, and I'm an independent of course and, and I was so pissed with his answer I went to Capitol Hill I connected with a Sigma new brother of mine and asked him the question Ben it was Culver's his name Ben he was a captain you know congressional aide I said Ben we want to use the GI Bill to go to these code schools how do we do it and so he gave me sort of a game plan and so to me the biggest realization was we need people who are elected office who have common sense, who are going to work with the same level of intensity that we expect and that our service members perform both on and off the battlefield. And I think that was sorely lacking on that very morning, on that Wednesday morning. And what I saw from Culver when he responded to me so quickly on Facebook Messenger, when he accepted my invite for lunch that that same Friday, the last day of the event, I told Raf, you know, I'll see you later. We connected. He's a, he's, a, he's an Air Force veteran, master sergeant, retired there as well as me, learning trying to learn, build a tech company. And when Culver responded that quickly, and he worked for a, a congressman from New York, when he responded that quickly, I thought, man, that's what public service is, is that you got to be expedient, you got to be open about it, you got to work with the same level of intensity as the people that you represent. And when I didn't see that from this Virginia senator, it was like the biggest eye opener. I'm like, man, this is sorely lacking. And so I really couldn't do much about it at the time. I was scratching my own itch, and my own itch at that time in 2013 was... Uh, learning to code on the GI Bill. And because I've become self-taught, because I've launched Operation Code and had a relationship meeting folks at the D.C. level, to state level, lobbying for this effort, and I've seen personally the impact this vocational education has had, not just on myself being self-taught, but on veterans from Operation Code, both on the GI Bill and not on the GI Bill. When I have seen this impact on my very own little brother, Victor, that he went to a code school in Seattle, and he his credit score went from like a 390 to like close to 800 in, in literally a two-year time span. He literally bought a house, Josh, last year That's in Tacoma, awesome. like blocks away from million-dollar homes over there in Ruston. And I saw the impact that this made on Victor, my own little brother. I thought, holy shit, like vocational education yeah. is an undervalued piece. When I look at Oregon and how much in Oregon we sorely lack on supporting vocational ed. I mean, when I was growing up, there was like welding class, auto body, electrician. Yep. And today, there's not a single class in Oregon that teaches embedded hardware. Not a single class teaches Raspberry Pi. And when I think about where the world is headed, when I think about the, the phenomenon of vacation education taking by storm and how companies are being launched just by a couple lines of code and learning rails or learning Node.js, when I think about all that, when I think about, you know, sort of the infrastructure being built in our in Oregon and the bridges that got to get rebuilt, when I think about all that, the number one drive for me is why is my, why is the incumbent, why is the elected official representing 29 sorely lacking on this? Why is this person the, the road block to Uber being accessible in rural Oregon County, in rural Oregon counties. Yeah. You know, when I think about people that have been killed or, or wound, you know, killed uh, because they were driving drunk or, or these kinds of things because Uber didn't exist in those areas and left. And when we're politicizing the, the sort of this technology or we're trying to make it so hard for tech companies to exist and coexist with all of us, we're all having apps here. When yeah. you make it so hard for this, when you sort of politicize this thing into something that it's not, I think when people's lives are at stake and most importantly for me, when my own neighbor's lives 
are not taking advantage of vocational placement in education, to me, is just like the biggest, I'm raising my hand. I'm going to solve this problem because the incumbent clearly has is not seeing the light. What I love, you, you mentioned this earlier, Ryan Carson from Treehouse here yeah. in Portland, he, he talks about this all the time. Like, you don't need to take out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans anymore. You right. can go to trade school, learn a trade, and go get a six-figure job doing code. It's I just, love Ryan, yeah. That, yeah, that's not the model anymore, and it's starting to turn the corner, and I love that that's your focus. What other things have been a challenge for you as you start this campaign and, and is it 2018 that you're going up for? Is it so yeah, this the primary I'm going to pose in the May primary, but then I'm up against the incumbent in November. Okay. Uh, greatest challenges between now and May, you know, we have a campaign launch next week is fundraising. I think yeah. part of the piece is, you know, not just veterans are not, uh, you know, veterans are more likely that we've seen veterans contribute to my campaign more so than Hispanics. But I think part of the issue is that people, you know, are not asked or they're not involved. They think it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest problem is, is entrepreneurs is that we think we We've never seen it as somebody else's problem because no. we attack the problem head on, right? We, we see a problem, we go and attack it, we fix it. And I think that's what, what I love to see is more in, in the public office space, not just at the state level, but city and, and, and local and federal is seeing more entrepreneurs into the space and helping push forward what, what is our, the public offices and the capitals and getting into 21st century. Because at the end of the day, um, people's lives are, are not getting started immediately or right away. You know, we're, we're, we're forcing an entire generation to drop out of high school because they don't want to go to the university. They want to work early. We're forcing an entire generation to do that. And Ryan's absolutely right. We have to rethink this entire model of education, right? It's an entirely, it's an entire system that in many ways I've seen from my own friends, by my own experience, a very, it's very bloated in many ways, right? You got programs where, you know, charging tens of thousands of dollars in education where you got guys coming out and can't get a freaking job in the industry because, by the way, we don't need that many people in political science. We don't need so many people with psychology degrees, general studies, biology. I mean, you name it, right? You look at Portland, right? How it's being transformed, the skyline here downtown. You look at areas like in Washington County, right? You don't need so many folks with university degrees in many instances. Yeah. You might need them at the managerial level. But if you think about the economy, it's how it's transforming, even like Intel, how they just laid off 800 people. Many of those people were not prepared or ready to go. Right. We, I met one guy, a gentleman named Thomas. He came to my office here at Operation Code in Portland, and we met a Navy veteran. Shit, he had no idea, Josh. It was to see this man just really emotional about it. He had spent an entire career at Intel to be let go like that. I sent him over to Code Fellows and, you know, and, and Jennifer, or, or excuse me, uh, Gustafson, uh, first name is escaping me, Jordana, right? And introduced her, uh, him to her and saying, you know, please help Thomas, you know. That thing, the whole piece is just really. I, I don't know, man. I get emotional about it because there's so many people that are not ready for that transformation and that change that is happening in business, right? So much of it is changing. IT departments are being turned upside down, outsourcing to AWS, you know, to 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 programs that are online and cloud-based. And it's just, it's a real terrible thing that our elected officials are stuck with partisan politics, with special interests. They don't want to let go and they don't want to think about the future. They're almost walking or crawling. They're not even walking. They're crawling and if not stagnant like pond water. And that whole piece is just terrible. And what's so frustrating is to see so many people, the partisan divide, because people see the R, the D after your name, but not willing to take a risk based on ideas. I think when people looked at you know, President Lincoln, they didn't think about the R or the D. They sort of saw this guy, he goes, oh, he's an idiot, he's uneducated or whatever. 
But I mean, he's the guy that got us out of the Civil War. He's the guy that got us the Emancipation Proclamation who said, you know what? No, Africans will not be slaves, right? Yeah. We will free them. And, yeah, and yeah. so it led to, and obviously things didn't happen right away, but it took a little while to, to get momentum. It's that inertia that's got to happen. And that's the hardest part about Oregon is that inertia to get us out of the rut for people beyond party lines to think outside their own party lines about what is best for Oregon. How can we get Oregon out of the bankruptcy in which it is, in which we invest more money into transportation to, to, to revitalize our, our, our roads and bridges and reform everything back to education so that we make sure that little kids, you know, migrant head start, little kids, four-year-olds are getting the education they want, that pre-reading, that we get these classrooms uncontrolled, 15 to 1 ratio like they do in Montessori. My girls went to Montessori for many years. And then ultimately, to the folks that need it the most, folks that really, really are disabled, really are handicapped, and they can't work. We need to support them. We can't leave them behind, right? I think that's ultimately the needs of, of government. But everything else, I mean, I mean, look at Washington. Washington's DMV, you're in and out of that line in 14 minutes, and you have a title transfer. Yeah. In Oregon, it takes you two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. I, I came up here from uh, California, and uh, it's even longer there. But uh, you know, we we could spend a whole day uh, lamenting oh, yeah. about the different DMVs. But uh, no, it's it's great. I, I lo- look. I love the fact that you're you're putting your hat in the ring. You're you're saying, look, there's a problem here, and it needs to be solved. You consistently have done that throughout your career, and and seeing you do that in politics is just uh, it tickles. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, for you, and and I wish you all the luck. I I will be here supporting you however I can, drumming support. Uh, but I am here for you, brother. Uh, I love it. So talk a little bit about, you know, we only have a few minutes left. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the great thing about Operation Code is that um, there are so many avenues in which you can go. Yeah. Uh, so I, what I really want to figure out is, would there ever be an Operation Code code school? You know, a former uh, founding board member, Pete Runyon, a Marine veteran, served in Okinawa, finance guy, he was my second treasurer, he had actually tried to usher us in that direction. Yeah. And I, I pushed back. We all did because we were trying to get code schools to be GI Bill approved, not to be a competition to code schools. And so, but in essence, if you if you think about what we do in terms of the mentorship, the software mentorship program we have, in terms of you know uh, getting scholarships and routing those scholarships to software conferences to our community, yeah. if you think about what we do, we are. You know, quasi pro quid whatever code school. <laughs> no, we, we, you're right. No, we're just, absolutely. We're just not for profit. Sure, and we're not a nonprofit code school. But if you look mentor at, based code school, I, love I mean, <laughs> if you if you think about what we do, we have like yeah. launch school. Yeah. Launch, excuse me, launch code is in our Slack. Sabio is in our Slack. You got you know. Code fellows, I mean, you got a number code school. I can't even name them all. all yeah. Omaha Code School in our Slack. So we are essentially more of a community of sorts because when a veteran says, hey, has anybody heard of Thinkful or Block? You got people, admissions officers inside our Slack literally reaching out saying, hey, I'm an admissions officer at, you know, at X Code School. What questions do you have? Or somebody says, hey guys, anybody know of a school in Southern California? And all of a sudden you have an alumni from a code school in Southern California goes, hey man, I went to this code school. Get, get to our channel. And so you join that channel. And that expediency of getting the support you need and help you need in a way that's not obtrusive, in a way that's not so coercive, but, but really free, moving, maneuvering is, is awesome because Love people it. are maneuvering however they want. Yep. 
We provide that mentorship. I mean, right now we have, I mean, uh, bless, uh, bless Ryan's heart. His team has given us 50 scholarships. We have 50 licenses with Treehouse. Our folks last year went through it. They've graduated. They've got those 50 licenses, you know, from front end, back end to Android development. And now we have 50 more. And so our chief community officer, Ashley, um, you know, distributes these pieces and, and it's through their mentorship program. And it's just a beautiful thing. So we may not be Josh per se and describe ourselves as a code school per se, I think Operation Code goes beyond that. It's just like Operation Geronimo. What was the intent of that? Right? Yeah. We are Operation Code, and, the, and our mission is is coding, to, to learn by doing. And we will partner with whichever company, with whichever code school can help our members get there. And yeah. in the end, far you know, far into the future, we see ourselves not just mentoring or coaching just our own our, our veterans, but just like this morning, I connected with a gal named Stephanie over at Revolution Coffeehouse. She had no idea about coding, and I and I pitched her over to Marty. I pitched her over to Launch Code with Carrie, and uh, it remains to be seen if she'll go from being a barista to being a coder. Yeah. She wants to do international business. I told her, you know what, honey, you already know international business. Learn some coding. Learn some Node.js. You could be an asset to any company with your passion and skill. You're international. You're bilingual fluency in Spanish. And you know coding. I mean, that's just a beautiful thing. So in the end, I see ourselves more as not just with our community of sorts, but also sort of preparing all, all the whole generation of Americans, everyone, to, to rethink this whole piece about software development, that it is the wave of the future. And you have to have this, this skill set, this computer literacy skill, just as you learn how to read, just as you learn how to ride a bike. You have to learn it. And it is that new skill set. Is that yep. is that blue collar sort of traditional skill set? Absolutely. And and it's just a beautiful thing. And we'll we'll keep pushing on that. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, if you know how to code, it doesn't matter what your job skill is yeah. or what your job is in general. An accountant can write a script that makes their compiling much easier, yeah. right? You don't have to be a developer to make your job easier through coding, right? And, and so that's what I think a lot of folks are starting to realize now. You know, even if you're like I was a telecom tech for a number. Of years, yeah, and I don't know how many PHP scripts I wrote that uh, released removed somebody from one desk and put another person in another desk because I could just simply write a PHP script to yeah. do the job that instead of just typing all the the, the names manually. Yeah, and you were at Twilio, right? Before. I was at Twilio for for about four years. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another thing, right? I could take a number of lines lines of code and make a phone ring, right? right? That's just like yeah. being a phone tech yeah. was just amazing to me. So yeah, I love it. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Any parting words that you want to impart? On our on our community, well, you know, I think when I was getting out, you know, a lot of NCOs, first sergeants, commanders, really pushed me and tried to sort of drill in me that this was the wrong way to go. Right? I think you just have to trust your gut. I was told many times, stay in your lane and don't fall on your sword. Be careful the sword you fall on. I think at the end of the day, you know, you will know best what you want to do. Your heart is already telling you to do that direction, and yeah. your heart and your your gut. You don't have to. You don't have to go very far. Just look around the evolution and the revolution that's happening in the industry, and 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 get ahead of it. Right, get ahead of it. Pick up the skill sets. You know, my brother still works in the construction industry until some things iron out personally for him, and then he's going to go apply for a job at .NET. He wants to ultimately go work at Microsoft. Yeah. You know, um, and then there's many people that transition jobs in this industry. It's learned by doing, um, and 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 you're really. You know, people often say, you know, how to get started. I would say, man, that the best way to get started in coding, I mean, if you want, operationcode.org is completely open source. Go to our website, operationcode.org, click on the little GitHub button at the very bottom, the little cat, the Octocat, and start contributing to Operation Code. If you can learn how to create an issue on operationcode.org, if you can start on the beginner issues, you are well on your way to being hired. I mean, no Facebook React team is ever going to hire you if you don't 
if you don't already have and contribute to open source, yep. whether operation code, which front end is React, or any other project. Yeah. This this real thing of coding, you will learn maybe in college computer science, you will learn by doing. Yep. And so I just want to you know throw that out to anybody listening on this thing. If you really want to get into coding, if you want a, a stress-free environment, if you want to get a real supportive environment community behind you, veterans and non-veterans in our community, you know, you know, we I ask you, you know, we're looking for front-end and back-end engineers to contribute to the to to maintain the code base. It is the best way to get into coding is, is volunteer your time, learn through open source. We will not slap your hand, you know, fail forward is the way to go. Yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. And ultimately that's how you're gonna get into the industry, is just yep. get get in there and get doing. Definitely. David Molina from Operation Code, CEO and founder. Love it. Thank you so much for being here. My brother from another mother. I love it. Thank you for spending the hour. It's been amazing, and I appreciate it. Uh, love you, man. Brother, the honor was all mine. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. And uh, until me. next week, we'll see you guys uh, next week. Later. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.